This is the podcast for RUF at Wake Forest. RUF exists for the convinced and the unconvinced, the lost and the found, the burned and the bored, the cynical and the spiritual. Whoever you are and whatever your story, RUF exists for you. For more information, check out our Instagram at RUF Wake Forest. Now, here's today's teaching. All right. Hey, our scripture tonight comes from Matthew chapter 6, verses 1 through 18. You can follow along with the words on the screen or a Bible if you have one. This is Jesus speaking. This is God's word for us tonight. It is trustworthy and true, and he gives it to us in love. Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them. For then you will have no reward from your heaven who is in heaven, from your father who is in heaven. Thus, when you give to the needy, sound no trumpet before you, as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets, that they may be praised by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, so that your giving may be in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. And when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and on the street corners, that they may be seen by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your Father who is in secret. And your father who sees in secret will reward you. And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them, for your father knows what you need before you ask him. Pray then like this. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. And when you fast, do not look gloomy like the hypocrites, for they disfigure their faces that their fasting may be seen by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you fast, anoint your head and wash your face that your fasting may not be seen by others, but by your Father who is in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, friends, uh, my name is John Bourgeois. I'm the RUF campus minister here at Wake, and if this is your first time joining us, we're really glad to have you with us. And tonight we have a treat. We get to hear from the Reverend Jonah Hooper. Uh, Jonah is a friend of mine, and he is the RUF campus minister at Winston-Salem State across town. He and his wife and family and kids, they uh, worship at Salem Prez and have been in Winston. How long y'all been here now? About six years. And um, he, for those of you who are upperclassmen, you've had the privilege of hearing from Jonah in years past. And so uh, come on up, Jonah. Um, I'd love to pray for him and then um, we'll get to hear from him. Father in heaven, thank you. Um, thank you for Jonah and thank you for your word. And Lord, I pray now that you would do the work that you do by your spirit. Would you um, open our hearts and our ears and uh, speak to us? Show us Jesus. We pray in his name. Amen. Amen. Grace and peace, fam. And thanks for uh, allowing me to share the gospel with you tonight. When we're looking at Matthew's gospel um, and the gospels are... Uh, mostly what we consider to have been written anonymously. Uh, yet one of the reasons this isn't such a big deal for us is because to their original audience, 
they they likely came to uh, people who they were in close community with or members of, of churches that they were in close contact with. And so even for the author, uh, they're writing these things, thinking intimately about who these letters are going out to. And the readers, of course, would have been very familiar with who uh, they came from. But Matthew was a tax collector uh, who became a disciple of Jesus. And in many regards, Matthew would have probably been uh, one of the most controversial of the disciples because of his profession. And if you think people today aren't big fans of things like the IRS, uh, you can imagine that in Jesus's day, um, tax collectors were the lowest in the totem pole. Uh, they of course lived under Roman occupation. And so tax collectors were Jewish dudes who collected money from their own Jewish brothers and sisters to give to the Romans. And if that isn't bad enough, uh, much of the reality was that they were known for corruption. So they take money uh, that they needed to give to the Romans who were in control, but they'd also impose taxes that would make themselves rich. And Matthew was one of those dudes, at least many would have thought. But Matthew's gospel is also special uh, because he writes not about something that he's learned from others. This isn't like research that he's done, but Matthew was there. So, so he, he writes remembering the look on Jesus's face as he preached. He knows that the smell that was in the air, he remembers the warmth of the sun. He, he's witnessed these dramatic healings and, and the way that people rejoiced in the crowds that gathered around them. But Matthew longs for us to come to see Jesus as this long awaited Messiah who in himself brings about the very kingdom of God, the savior for all of humanity. And chapters four through 11 though of Matthew's gospel, we see over and over again, these demonstrations of how Jesus shows himself to be God in the flesh. And he does this here through the essence of his preaching, developing this typology of being the very messianic son of God. This is Jesus's teaching par excellence. And it is a kingdom address where he offers himself as the true and better fulfillment of the law and the salvation for which we all long for. Matthew is a skilled literary craftsman who shows us Jesus and the calling to live upside down, warning against showiness in religious practice and giving to charity and praying and fasting. And Jesus models prayer with an economy of words over the emptiness of false intellectualism. In the very first verse, Jesus says to beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them. For then you will have no reward from your father who is in heaven. And to beware is to be wary, is to be careful or cautious. This is action that leads to consequences like when we see signs like a beware of a dog because we are being warned that the consequences of our actions can lead us and in negative circumstances. Be sure to note though, that the cause and effect nature of what Jesus is saying, to beware of practicing your righteousness before people, to be seen by them, and then look at what the effect is. He says, you will have no reward from your father who is in heaven. 
verses two through four says, thus, when you give to the needy, sound no trumpet before you, as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets that they may be praised by others. And truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing so that your giving may be in secret and your father who sees in secret will reward you. How ridiculous is this? They found a way to turn the very good thing of giving to those in need into TV drama. And Jesus calls them hypocrites. See, Jesus is pointing out that they are only pretending to be virtuous and morally good for the sake of being seen by others. Hypocrisy is the opposite of holiness. It's counterintuitive to all that we live as believers. In Romans 12 and 9, we're, we're called to hate evil and to cling to what is good. And we do this by living in Christ-likeness. Language over time, though, often shifts. And, and the word hypocrisy used here, even for Matthew's original audience, would have had a more a literal definition that would have translated more accurately to mean something like an actor. Actors were those who wore figurative masks to pretend to be something that they were not. So, so get this, an, an actor is, is not truly himself until no one is looking. So who are you? when no one is looking. If you're looking at this text and only thinking that Jesus is talking about some other people that you know, I can promise you, then more likely, you're exactly the actor that Jesus is talking about. See, if we're honest with ourselves, we're just actors who rooted themselves in dignity and worth that is not found in Christ Jesus. But we think more about what others believe about us. We're actors on the stage of life wearing masks to disguise the factors that we've lost our truest selves and we've replaced God's truth with the fake realities of our hearts that are far from God. And as a student, I get this. I, I know the pressure that, that, that life brings to us to wear these fake masks, the masks of relationships and sex and Greek life and grades and, and finding the right job, getting into the right grad school. These are masks after masks after masks. And we struggle this way because we seek our identity and the life that we create for ourselves rather than resting in the finished work of Christ. Jesus says, though, to those who live this way, oh, you will get the reward. To give so that one hand doesn't know what the other hand is doing on the other hand is a bit weird too, right? But this is the prime example of what it means to live in this upside down reality. It's simply to, to give in such incredible secrecy that no one else knows what is going on. And as students don't think that we get off because we're talking about giving financially, no, 
uh, let me tell you that what you have to give is often more priceless. See, many of you know parents in churches who are in desperately needing to have a quiet dinner alone. So you can give. Students in our schools need mentors and tutors and coaches so you can give. Homeless shelters need volunteers and there are elderly that need to be fed so you can give. Or maybe it's simply the reality that there are other students on campus who need to hear the good news of Jesus so you can give. See, when we give in this way, notice that Jesus says, though, that the Father sees it. And not only then does he see it, but he says that he will reward you. See, living upside down this way draws us away from the tragic irony of the praise of men that is vain and fleeting to be rewarded by the Father with an eternal reward. Look at what Jesus says about prayer in verses five and six. He says, and when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners that they may be seen by others. And truly I say to you, you have received their reward, but when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your father who is in secret. And your father who sees in secret will reward you. Here we go again with the actors, right? See, like giving to the needy, prayer was a cornerstone of pious religious life. It, it was common for people to participate in, in public prayer often throughout the day, yet for many, not only were they acting and giving to others, but they were acting even in their prayer life. Jesus turns prayer upside down, calling us to pray often in complete secrecy. Yet not only does he tell us to do this, but he models this himself, often being so withdrawn in prayer that the disciples go looking for him. The God who hears these secret prayers he again will reward. Jesus is not condemning public prayer, though. It's a great thing to pray with others. And what Jesus is condemning, rather, is this pretentious religious acts, just wanting to be seen by somebody else. In verse 7 and 8, there is the shift from these Jewish religious elites, though, uh, to the Gentiles. Look at what he says. He says, and when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard for their words, for their many words, and do not be like them, for your father knows what you need before you ask him. Two things often took place in, in pagan worship that most in that day would have noticed. First would have been this ridiculous repetition. They would say the names of God just over and over again. But the second thing would be this verbose vocabulary that pretended only to be deep. But way, what is way more incredible though is why Jesus says that we shouldn't be like them. He says that God knows what we need before we even ask him. Our God is a loving father who despite what our natural fathers may be like, 
God always wants what's best for us. He always has our best interests in mind. He knows us, he sees us, and he wants what is good for us. John Calvin says that believers do not pray with the view of informing God about things unknown to him or of exciting him to his duty or of urging him as though he were reluctant. On the contrary, they pray in order that they may arouse themselves to seek him, that they may exercise their faith in meditating on his promise, that they may relieve themselves of their anxieties by pouring them into his bosom. And a word that they may declare that from him alone, they hope and expect both for themselves and for others, all good things. And verse nine through 13 though, it's what many call the Lord's Prayer. It says, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debtors as we also forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. And I know many of us, this prayer is familiar, but I want to be sure to point out some details that we often miss from this prayer's repetition because we hear it so much. See. Jesus opens the prayer with this simple designation. He says, our Father. And as I studied I, this week, I, I became more conscious of this common thing of how we teach uh, that Jesus is using the word like daddy. But I'm not so sure that this is the most appropriate interpretation. See, Jesus does indeed want us to pray with intimacy, but He's warning us as well against irreverence. Our Father in heaven is to imply that we are in relationship with the God of the universe who wants to know and commune with us. And his name is hallowed, which is to be holy and sacred. For the kingdom to come and his will on earth as it is in heaven is an incredibly profound statement. That should be the great longing of our hearts. The kingdom coming is God's redemptive design for creation as he rules and reigns. And Jesus comes not only to inaugurate the kingdom, but within himself embodies the very kingdom of God. And his will is his perfect plan for us. The daily bread from verse 11 connects the narrative of the Old Testament to its fulfillment in the person and work of Jesus. In John 6:51, Jesus proclaims that he is the very bread of life. Bread, this essential for life that God had provided for people in the wilderness was now fulfilled in Jesus as the bread is eternal. And he's calling us to, to feast on him and to be sustained by his presence. And while I know that it's common to think of debt today only in reference to money, but Jesus is speaking to the astronomical debt of sin that we could not pay. That God and his great love for us has given his son Jesus to pay the penalty of death. Death that we deserve, that we might have eternal life in him. See, debt is used here to demonstrate the awfulness of sin 
and to shine light on his glorious grace shown to us in the gospel and made freely available through faith in Christ Jesus. Temptation, though, should not be a surprise to us as Christians. James, uh, the brother of Jesus, wrote to the church that it's through temptation and suffering that we grow as followers of Jesus. True deliverance from the bondages of sin come only from him, as he alone can rescue us. In verses 14 and 15, it says, for if you forgive others their trespasses, your father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your father forgive your trespasses. To forgive others of their trespasses is simply to forgive them of any wrongdoing towards you. But look at the cause and effect nature of this again. When you forgive, he will forgive. And even when we don't want to admit it, forgiveness is a critical need for us. The gospels tell the story of a man who's paralyzed and, and their friends find out that Jesus is in town preaching. Uh, so they put the man on a mat and take him to the house where Jesus is. And when they get there, it's so crowded that they can't even get inside. So they go up to the roof and tear the roof off. They drop this paralyzed man inside. And I don't know about you, but I want some friends who are going to tear the roof off for me. But when Jesus sees the man coming down, he tells him that his sins are forgiven. And there are these religious dudes who are there who say, man, you, you can't say that, Jesus, that's blasphemy. But Jesus tells them, yeah, he needs healing, but far greater than healing does he need the forgiveness of sin. And then he tells them to get up because he's been healed. In verses 16 through 18, though, Jesus speaks of fasting as he did giving the charity and praying, saying that, and when you fast, do not look gloomy like the hypocrites, for they disguise their faces, that their fasting may be seen by others. And truly, I say to you, they have received their reward, but when you fast, anoint your head and wash your face, that your fasting may not be seen by others, but your Father who is in secret. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you. See, fasting was a pretty common practice. Uh, it was to abstain from food while being prayerful and even mourning sin. See, fasting was intended to be a matter of the heart to demonstrate that our greatest affection in all of life is for God alone. In the book, Hunger for God, John Piper writes, he says, God rewards fasting because fasting expresses the cry of the heart that nothing on the earth can satisfy your souls besides God himself. No, it doesn't obligate God to do anything but an admission that we cannot save ourselves and that we call on Christ to redeem us. Let me just close tonight with just asking is he the delight of our lives? Is he your true joy and treasure? To delight in him is to, to savor him in his excellence.
made known to us in Jesus. And he brings true justice and grace. So tonight I pray that you would delight in his love, that you would delight in his protection, that the great longings of life may be found in him alone, and that you would rest in this truth. Amen, y'all. Y'all be blessed. Thank you, Jonah. Um, friends, uh, thanks for joining us tonight. May the love of God the Father and the grace of his Son, our Savior Jesus Christ, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit go with you and be with you until that great day. Have a great week.